everyone. Welcome to the 41st ever podcast for Shut Up and Sit Down, the podcast, pod, podcast, podcast website reviews videos of about the board games on the table or anywhere you can play them in your house, home videos. Yep. Great intro. Matt, over to you. <laughs> Oh, that was amazing for videos. Yep, probably. That's, uh, that's probably, I think, our new catchphrase for the website. Uh, how are you, Paul? You're in uh, Canada still. Yeah, it's disappointing, but also makes me happy because you've got trees and bears and all things that are trees and bears. The bears are waking up. And also, we've got here, obviously, in the UK, Quinted Smith. <laughs> Thanks. Hi. <laughs> How's it going, guys? I thought you were going to introduce yourself. It's well, getting awkward. It's your. It's kind of your thing, you know. What butting in and being like. No, I meant what I up? meant like the, the website and the you know you kind of you know yeah introducing some, you to the podcast seems weird. Hey, I tell you what, I'm going to get this pod train back on the rails and tell everybody that mm-hmm. they should visit uh, shutupandsitdown.com if they haven't recently because we got a new site. Oh my yes. goodness, yes, we have. Oh. All of the things that Paul just said at the intro, all true. Yes. Uh, that's our new website. It's completely rejazzed, isn't it? We've got um, a fantastic new games page where you can kind of uh, put your points You can slide your it. cursor if you're on a desktop over pictures of games and then our faces will appear out of the boxes as yeah. if you were unboxing those games and we were inside. Which tiny face. Will will be a future feature. Will be inside all board games ever. <laughs> uh, don't tell people about the Omega Doctrine, Paul. That is not uh, something people need to know. Oh, I'm so sorry. Another feature it's got is, for the first time ever, uh, we have tagged every single game we've ever covered. So if you want to see all the games we recommend all the games that we recommend for two mm-hmm. people heavy games party games uh, role playing games all that is tagged you can click on a big chunky button yes. and the site will go and then it will produce what you asked for and sometimes uh, what you didn't ask for but we're working on that and we also even got just all of our recommendations on one page regardless of, yep. of style that makes sense why didn't we do that yeah. earlier <laughs> <Certain> <laughs> games we explicitly recommend you just go and leaf through those oh and we have an extremely high-tech new forum that is open to everybody because we have one of the best commenting communities on the internet and we wanted to give you guys the tools to uh, enjoy yourselves. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. So if you want to organise some local board game groups or you just want to find out if you're the only person who keeps specifically getting one rule wrong, there's a thread about that. Yeah. Think, about like, what rule do you always fudge <laughs> about people talking about the thing that they always get wrong? I felt too scared to put my dip my toe into that because it's like... Well, it's we like, already admit enough, like, you know, yeah, our precisely. mistakes are in all the video reviews where we're like, of course, this rule makes no sense. And then people I think I think we already videos. admit enough that we get things wrong without me going in and going, I don't know what I'm doing at all. <laughs> yeah. That's but, oh, you know what else we have? We have a ser- just a plain old search feature. Yes. Mm. And if you type in the word bums, then it comes up with a picture of me and my friend. So it? yeah, it does. Um, it's the, does it? it comes up with the Star Wars uh, feature. Yeah, about oh. being evil in Star Wars. I'm not sure why, but every time I just joking, we go, oh, bums. And it's like, no, it does actually come up with things. So yeah, uh, try searching other words as well. I'm just, just going to do that now. No, it's great because the thing is like, a lot of time on Shubs Are Down, people are just, uh, you know, you come, and, you come and look at what's on the front page. See, it works. It works. Um, <laughs> yep. But there are so many awesome videos that you guys have been working on for years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, there's even a few extra ones. If people have finished the entire backlog of the site, head to um, our Vimeo account where you can see the old, old, old episodes that me and Paul put together when we were full of excitement but didn't know how to use a camera. So, I mean, there are just entire shots where we're shooting into the light and we're like uh, yep. ghosts. So that's good. Uh, but hey... We're not here just plugging our site, ladies and gents. We're here to talk to you 
about games. Uh, God, I want to I give you guys the running order because we're very organised uh, today. We're going to talk a bit about uh, Torchbearer, the RPG that Matt <gasps> and I have been playing. We're going to talk about 1980s classic Merchant of Venus. We're going to talk <gasps> about Dragon Farkle, which has just been announced on the new season of uh, Tabletop. Um, <gasps> uh, and we're going to talk about what we think of that. Paul's been playing Drinking at the Red Dragon Inn. <laughs> Paul, <laughs> well, Paul in the background, we have uh, our running order in a, in a Google Doc and, and Paul purposefully changed the word Tabletop into table tits and uh, because Quinns didn't read it out in the way he'd hoped he would he has since just been making it bolder and larger and so it's not taking up about a third of the page just the word table I did not change that word I just enlarged it Mm. somebody else changed it well it wasn't me Google Docs shared responsibility <laughs> we, you know we have the tag though we could go back and check the revision history and see which end this was d- on d- yep it's mm. true uh, but let's not do that we are going to dive into our mailbag and answer some of your questions we're going to talk about our folk game of the month and also god this is going to be a big chunky podcast for everybody I've uh, got an interview with Soren Johnson um, who is the fantastic video game uh, creator who was the lead designer on Civilization 4 he's just released a new game called Offworld Trading Company which is awesome but I've got a him talking uh, I trapped him and I tricked him and he's talking about board games with me talking about economic warfare board games and civilization board games it was an awesome interview and people can look yeah. forward to that at the end of this cast I haven't heard that yet either and I'm really interested because he has a he has quite a, a stellar history in games if you want to hear uh, about why he thinks that because I, I asked him what the best civilization uh, board game was and he told me uh, that uh you know, Small World, the old Days of Wonder game where, you know, Ooh. fairies fight skeletons is actually up there for a really interesting reason. People are going to have to wait till the end of the podcast to hear about it. I don't like Small World that much, but we'll see. Uh, well, I mean, it's it's more of like a design ethos. Anyway, we got anyway. so much to get through. Uh, Paul, you are interested in Torchbearer. Matt and I have been playing it. Why don't you grill us yeah. like a couple of sausages? So here's the thing. I mean, Torchbearer, am I right? It's a role-playing game, right? You're right, Paul. Oh, boy, you are. (laughs) It's a tabletop role-playing game. It literally Uh, is. In a fantasy setting, uh, which might initially make you think it's kind of D&D-like. Yeah, it is. Like your adventurers, you go into a place that is dark and you want treasure and you fight monsters, right? Yeah, and actually, um, it is not just D&D-like. It's actually so D&D-like that I've been kind of enjoying um, running games of it for Matt and our other uh, group. And it's like, you know, you're just going into a cave of kobolds and that's the entire evening. Or like Matt wasn't there last session and they had to negotiate with some giants and that was the entire evening. Like the most D&D tropes, um, you know, it's a game of those. And yet, Paul, it's really interesting. Yeah. Right, because it seems like somehow mechanically or thematically, there's something very fundamentally different about how it presents itself. Well, both, yeah. I mean, uh, the, the the way the mechanics kind of work with the theme is, is, is stellar. But really, we'll talk about the theme itself first. What I love about Torchbearer is it, it starts with a really interesting question. And that question is, what sort of people go into caves full of kobolds <laughs> also, you know like, well, I mean obviously in Dungeons and Dragons you do it because you're a hero because the town needs you to go and kill the skeletons but let's hypothesize the treasure, but, but that there is reality, no such thing as yeah, a hero like well, also like why who would do that like it'd be like you know somebody says well there might be treasure in this cave full of skeletons it's like well yeah but who's gonna really 
risk their own life for that? And the answer is quite simple. It's desperate people. It's people who've got nothing, nobodies, losers. And so what's lovely about Torchbearer is when you start your character, you don't do that kind of thing you start doing in Dungeons & Dragons where you wistfully look out the window whilst imagining your elf archer with his falcon <laughs> friend, uh, Perinol. And, and, you know, obviously then you start playing D&D and you're not the hero you think you are. You have to, like, level up and stuff. But in your head, you are. You've already decided yeah. you're going to yeah, be you like think I'm a cool warrior, but then it's like, well, why did I just miss this goblin three yeah. times in a row? Yeah, and it's kind of harder to... to to kind of reconcile that because in Dungeons and Dragons you always fixate on this hero that you're going to be mm-hmm. even though it then takes forever to get there and you might not whereas in this you kind of go well you're nobody so like my character is just a guy who worked on a farm why is he doing this because everybody knows he's dead and that's it like <laughs> it's just like well wow. I used to be a farmer now I'm not because my farm got burned down and all my family are gone Yeah, and it means I'm just this sort of strange idealistic child who really wants to try and keep people safe um, but fundamentally doesn't really have the ability to do so because A he's just one person and it's a horrible cruel dark world Yeah. The- so here's the thing then um, I mean I'm, I'm a huge fan of the video game Baldur's Gate 2 and I've always said that I like it because I feel it deconstructs fantasy to some degree like you've got all these heroes but they're all quite kind of damaged by the experiences that they've gone through Mm -hmm. and they've all like lost friends and they've to some degree a a bit like at the end of lord of the rings but better like they can't relate to the rest of the world anymore yeah um and it kind of says you know if you to some degree if you're these sort of people you might be unhinged or imbalanced in some way because you either were to begin with or your life you know a life where you mostly kill solve problems by killing people Mm -hmm. it's not really a great life right so so it it sounds like you kind of you are those people you're just you're not going to be happy this is why it's so much fun because uh the so in D D, obviously you have hit points and hit points are just this insane abstracted relic from the 1970s um whereas uh in torchbearer you have these adjectives so rather than getting damaged if you have a fight and you drive off an orc um but you didn't do it that successfully maybe one of you is injured and they check off injured on their sheet maybe when you you fail to climb a wall particularly well so you make it to the top but now you check the box that's labeled exhausted and these Mm -hmm. kind of um uh, stat penalties stack up and you only usually die when you've ticked off all of them so your character like isn't just going to lose a fight and die suddenly which is both uh, not a fun game mechanic and not particularly narratively interesting what Torchbearer simulates is like you're in the cave for a long time and you get angry with each other then you get afraid then you slip up and you get injured and then you get sick because you've lost so much blood then finally when you've checked off everything you can die and so death is this thing that actually creeps up on you but more than that and this relates to what you were saying about all those gate porn and this is what's so completely awesome and I love is that between sessions you spend the money you've got to try and clear these checkboxes and a lot of the time you won't succeed so if you're injured and you've got a bit of money then maybe you can rest up and be well in time for the next adventure but maybe you're not and then you get all, and the thing we've been having a lot is um, characters going into the next adventure not entirely able to clear their sheet which means players start off the session role playing the fact that they're angry and have to role play that for the entire <laughs> session or yeah. Matt was hungry for one of the sessions yeah. oh wow I was hungry right from the start and that was based on the I mean you kind of ruled that in but I was hung over because it made sense so you talk about the characters being broken what's lovely is my character started out fairly idealistic and had a really lucky run of it like yeah this guy who was like i'm gonna keep people safe and then for some reason he did like he kept saving people he kept being the hero he kept being the person who stayed behind you know stood there and took the onslaught and lived 
to save the, you know, and it didn't make any sense, really. It kept it just really lucky. <laughs> you know, I mean, it kind of, it worked because, you know, luck is a thing that exists in real life and in Torchbearer. Yeah, but it became this wonderful thing of the fact that then I started to become a hero and the other characters um, started to kind of look up to my character as being like, yeah, we listen to what he says. We follow this guy. He's like invincible. He's a hero. But then I just carried on acting in the same way of trying to save everybody, trying to do the right thing. And it just went wrong and it just went badly. And we had two big adventures in a row where the decisions I made or the inactions I took were just the wrong decision and ended up just being disastrous. And then it's just since then, my character is just slowly becoming an alcoholic, really. And it's kind of fitting that I haven't been able to make the last role playing session and might not be able to make the next one. And the fact that my character, where is he? Well, he's just, he's just drinking. Like, and the fact that my character isn't fresh faced at the start of the adventure, he's hung over. He's permanently hungry and thirsty and just in a bad mood. And it's, it's kind of great that also I love the fact that even when you are fresh faced, it's like you start every adventure rolling well, getting extra dice, uh, everything's great. And then after about a few hours, down the mines you're, you're suddenly you're not feeling fresh anymore you're hungry you're thirsty you're getting tired you're cold you're wet and it just means towards the end it just feels like you're really grinding you know but in a way of being yeah. like you feel like what once felt optimistic you know the first time you kill a kobold you're like you perfectly slay it and you're like ha ha we're the best and then you're surrounded by six of them and you're thinking are we gonna die down here yeah like, just, that's the beauty of it <laughs> it grinds you down and also it's lovely the fact that you can't actually even progress in the game without failure you need to like you mm. need to pass a certain number of checks on your skills but also fail a certain number and what's lovely is that it that stops that horrible mechanic in role-playing games of like the um you know, if the GM doesn't want you to do something, they'll just say, oh, we'll just roll. You know, and then they'll look at it and go, oh, no, you didn't do it. Like, it's in this, because a failure actually is one of the things you need to level up your character. It means that, you know, if you're DMing it, you don't just say, oh, just roll, just roll. Because every time you give someone a roll, especially if it's something that's really easy, you're just giving them free successes. So you have to actually think carefully about how often you want to uh, make the dice be the decider of stuff. and um, It really just smooths out so much. And actually, um, I forgot to mention this to start, um, Hilary McNaughton, our RPG correspondent, has just published an actual big written review of Torchbearer. If you want to learn more about it, um, that'll be up on the site and we'll link it in this podcast description. So do check out, um, just search for Torchbearer on shutupandsitdown.com. Yeah, the new search bar. Yeah, the one final thing I would say, Paul, as far as, um, and my favourite thing in it that is just so completely awesome as far as characters breaking and exploring different sides of them, it has the sim simplest path to awesome role-playing I've ever encountered, um, which mm. is when you make a character, you write down your belief. So, like, Matt's is, uh, you know, like, I'm the only thing that keeps people safe. And uh, you get some some sort of XP for uh, for playing along with that, but you get mm-hmm. crap tons of XP when you play to the reverse. So if Matt ever role-plays being someone who doesn't keep people safe, the game rewards him, which means you have characters that, uh, that you figure out what your character is, and then the game immediately points you towards the most thing narratively, which is uh, acting contrary to who you thought you were, mm. which is you know that's 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 just a great tip for book writing. Little, never mind role playing. Yeah, I mean, obviously that sort of wow. thing that then requires like kind of a hand on the tiller because you have people who just make a character and then constantly act in the opposite. But like, then that would just change well, your belief. Not, yeah, that's the thing. It would just change it. Uh, but it is nice that yeah, you just gravitate towards being like this. I think it's just, it's kind of brutal, but it's wonderful that you have, the character has these ideals and has these aims, but then the world is so harsh that it's just causing you to, to break under it and just go, yeah, but are you actually going to do it? Are you actually going to save these people or are you going to run away and live? Because <laughs> you're, so, you know. I mean, I think then I've, I've got to ask is, does this cause, how does this work in like a party dynamic? Do you end up, um, 
sometimes turning on each other or arguing with each other or trying to support each other. Or yeah, I mean, we had an interesting thing. Um, in the last adventure... I mean, you could, it's not like this is a spoiler because it's an adventure I made, so you can explain what happened. Yeah, well, basically, um, in, in the last adventure we had, I was just... I was I was following the priest character because like, he's kind of an older character and my guy's younger, so I was kind of believing that he was kind of a father figure. And also he'd been seen to have these kind of... these connections with the gods before. There had been uh, circumstances where he'd done something and it, it made give a sense he did have this power. And then there was mm-hmm. this point where we were fighting a, a dryad, this sort of big tree beast that we probably could have just not fought uh well we definitely could have not fought um but we really went for it and we just my character was just determined to just try and destroy it um it just wanted to kill it because it was like my character had a previous like luggage with this thing and he felt that by killing this thing it might actually manage to absolve him of his own guilt for the mistakes he made in the past but then we had this moment where it was like i was trying to beat the hell out of him failed and and then the, our priest character had this moment where he was basically almost killed by this thing. He was just on the the fringe of death, and in this moment of of on the edge of life, he just looked to the skies and tried to kind of call out to the gods um, in this impassioned plea to strike this thing down with lightning. And he really felt there was going to be this connection to the gods, and um, then nothing happened. And it was just this moment of it being like, and that was kind of nice because we had had kind of these arguments before. And it's funny how um, yeah. one of the guys who's playing this younger character, who's supposed to be a bit more like clever, essentially, was getting a bit, yes. uh, finding it a bit difficult to find his role in the group because it kept being that me and uh, the priest, who were a bit more like strong headed and were just running into things. And it was that thing if he was like kind of wanting to be like, no, wait, like we should stop and think about this. But then it's like, that was kind of interestingly frustrating for him, both as a character and a player. But then I know now that after that event, the dynamic will have changed. And now like whenever we're in a situation again, where I'm like, come on, let's go. I'm still going to say, come on, let's go. But everyone else would be completely within their right to say no. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just because yeah. like, so there is tension, especially when, you know, your, your characters are role-playing being angry for an entire session. It's, it's uh, I guess it's quite a grown up role-playing game. I think yeah. you'd struggle to do yes. that with, with teenagers. I mean, I've always, this is all I've chased really as a games master. I've always chased like sort of emotional hardships and Paul will, uh, will, know that from yeah. playing in my Legend of the Five Rings campaign where I was just like life sucks all your decisions are bad I'm never going to give you any like leeway being a samurai is really difficult good times though that's uh I'm, I'm <laughs> loving me some Torchbearer oh it's fantastic yeah. but uh, but my god we should uh, we should blitz the rest of uh we've, we've been talking for almost 20 minutes guys and there's so much to do let's let's do let's do a venus let's do a merchanting of uh, a venus let's talk quickly about merchant of venus guys i played merchant of venus recently that is a, a game what is from the 1980s originally where you fly around you trade stuff in space part of a whole genre of space trading games that i talk about a bit with soren at the end of this uh episode but fantasy flight um recently in 2013 did a new edition you know, doing yes. the traditional Which fantasy you, flight thing. you were excited about. Yeah, I was, because it's the well, Cosmic Encounter is like our second favourite game ever, and that is an example of one of these classics from the 1980s that has been restored by Fantasy Flight. And um, and I think usually that games that have hung around since the 70s or 80s or 90s, you know, like Catan even. They've done so for a reason. They've done so for a reason, you know. Um, they're beloved, yeah. and so I'm always interested in um, checking them out, but especially interested when a new publisher goes, you know, puts a new lick of paint on them, because mm-hmm. I think that's, you know, the result of, that then creates 
create some of the best games ever made. So I played Merchant of Venus. I was like, why doesn't anyone talk about Merchant of Venus? I'd love to be a Merchant of Venus. But. Really boring. Uh, well, no, okay, no, that's completely not fair. Um, it was it was very cool and far too long. Um, and the thing about it that I did really like, first off, gorgeous board. Second off, incredibly funny writing on all the different like goods you can buy and stuff. But um, third off, the actual initial, the first third of it is so awesome because you, especially if you're playing it for the first time, and if people have a lot of disposable income, I'd recommend even like, picking up a copy of Merchant of Venus and trying it with two players because for the love of God, don't play it with three or four because it's one of those games that will just become like twice as long with four people. And it dragged with two. It's so long. But um, the plot line is that uh, you and your little space trader buddies are in a galaxy where some kind of awful space-wide catastrophe has just happened. You've beaten off the bad dudes. Uh, You didn't beat them off. No, stop, stop, stop. It's fine. We understand. Rewind. Um, But... All knowledge of the galaxy has been lost. So all the information and the trade goods um, and stuff on planets is face down at the start of the game, which leads to a setup that takes approximately 15 minutes um, where you have to put everything down and it, it's, it's, it's insane. But wow. so when you when the game starts and one of you breaks off and goes towards the desert planet, you then flip which alien race is on that planet. Maybe it's like, oh, humans. Humans live on the de- desert planet now. And that's a nice bit of storytelling. And then you can buy the human trade good, which is music videos. Um, so then maybe you're like, okay, I'll spend all my disposable income on music videos and you filled your hole with music videos, but you don't have anyone to sell them to yet. But then maybe someone else discovers on the ice planet, like this weird philosophical race of people who sell paperweights and then, and, um, different species all buy different things. If you've played a trading game, you'll know how this works. But the neat thing is, is because everything's face down initially, you don't know what any of the trade routes are. But then eventually, you know, at turn four, someone will flip over a planet and you'll go, oh my God, it's the warrior people. They love rock music and I can sell to them. And then, so as people discover this randomized galaxy, then you can start noticing uh, trade circles and trade routes. Um, you can become a space taxi. You can buy, like, buy delivering passengers. You can have a really slow ship with huge cargo holds or a really fast ship that's more nippy. Um, there's a bajillion components, loads of stuff. Uh, storytelling's really cute. Um, just flying and trading and making money and uh, then reinvesting that money until money isn't an issue anymore. It's a very like three-act game where you're exploring and then you're trading and then you're so rich you're just trying to make... You're just, like trying to break the game, basically, and make scads of cash. But my God, it was way too long. Sure. Yeah. So uh, why is it so long? I mean, my question then would be, what is the the definition of victory? How far do you have to go before? How rich do you have to be before you win? Uh, You don't. You just play for 30 turns and then the game ends. Yeah. Um, There is a light speed version of the manual, which kind of auto does the setup. Um, which Fantasy Fight clearly put in because they realized the game was way too long, but then the light speed version is going to like ruin the best bit of the game, which is the exploration. Um, they could make it shorter, but then I think the way the game is balanced, you know, like a lot of strategies immediately become invalid if you make the game shorter because yeah. the really long-term stuff doesn't yeah. work. Um, but my God, very, very, very pretty board. Like one of my favorite boards that I've ever seen, just like there's an asteroid belt and there's space stations and planets and all these different loops and supernovas and stuff. You really do feel like, you know, you're poodling around a galaxy in like a, in a space Eddie Stobar truck. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's good. It's, I'm a Norbert Dontresongle man myself. Uh, oh, is that a real? It's a Hornish real film. brand of uh, like Hawley's trucks. Because whenever we used to see them, my mum used to go, "No, but Don Angle." Your mum's ace. I love yeah, your mum. She's good. <laughs> <laughs> I, I wonder if there's anything else that's at all interesting to say about Merchant of Venus. Mainly just the writing. Like I couldn't believe how much fun I was having discovering like 
the weird insectoid space Nazis. Yeah, I think it's a funny because like we go back to a lot of these uh, 80s games and sometimes they're just like perfect. Sometimes they're like a little bit threadbare, a little bit pared down and other times they're just like these sprawling complex things. And I think what's quite cool about exciting modern design now is we're still able to have these little complicated experiences mm-hmm. but in a shorter form. Like You don't have yeah. to have like both. You don't have to be like complicated and an epic. I don't know what was happening in the 80s where people just had this much time. Like, Or maybe they were just not a lot. high I mean, on <laughs> cocaine all the time yeah, and therefore could yeah. play twice as fast. Yeah, that, that must be it. I mean, <laughs> it's it's a combination of both, of course. But I mean, it it does sound kind of vaguely talismany to me that it just could eat your entire day. Yes, definitely the same category as talisman. Um, absolutely, I can't. I just I can't believe we played it with two, and it took us like four and a half hours, and it should have taken three at the most. And then the idea of playing it with four players is just bonkers. Oof. Um, so yeah, let's move on because there's lots of uh, slightly disappointing games to cover. Matt and I played Dragon Farkle. It's a Farkle. So, yeah. That's a Farkle. That's a Farkle. Um, right. So here's another thing I just want to start asking questions about. First of all, what are you talking about? What, what, what? Well, let me tell you about Dragon Farkle. I, I, I don't even know if I, I just like to say Dragon Farkle, which is why I'm delaying I know. actually talking about it. That's kind of the most fun thing about the game, is saying Dragon Farkle. I was, then, oh, that's me, Farkle. I was immensely disappointed when I discovered that Dragon Farkle was a follow up to a game called Farkle. And Were that, you? Yes. <laughs> because the fact that you call it Dragon Farkle and that the fact that there's never been a game called Farkle before just is brilliant. Oh, I see. Um, right. Yeah. It's a much more inventive name if it wasn't a follow on from an abstract dice game called Farkle. And yeah, and then I got. Again, disappointed when I discovered that Farkle was, in fact, just a kind of tongue-in-cheek way of, of saying a rude word without saying a rude word. You've effed it. So, yeah, so I just thought the whole thing was like, ah, it, like, it went from being like, I love this, to being like, this is really disappointing to me <laughs> on a number of levels. Wow. What? Just, so, wow, just, conce- okay. just conceptually. This uh, is purely conceptual. I mean, at the end of 2015, we said that uh, we weren't actually going to talk as much about games we didn't think were very good. Yeah. Um, yes. The only reason... I mean, we, we've always tried to point in a more helpful direction yeah, anyway especially but, yes. so in 2016 to get more people into the hobby if they come to shut up and stay the first thing they learn about the hobby is us going hi this is bad it, you know that's not great so the only reason we're talking about Dragon Farkle is really like as a PSA because Tabletop sells so many board games and they've announced that Dragon Farkle is one of the games that'll be on Tabletop and hopefully people will watch it and be like this doesn't seem good but we're here to tell you it's not very good it, yeah it's I an, mean it's an abominably long like um, oh, what's that game Yahtzee where you roll dice and try and get sets um, yes that's it basically but the sets you get are then like soldiers and the soldiers come over to you and then you can invest the soldiers in trying to kill the dragon and whoever kills the dragon first wins but again like but you kind of have multiple pops of the dragon it might be that you soften them up and then someone else kills the dragon and you have like magic items that you get but it's weirdly like I mean I guess it kind of it fits weirdly into the same category of stuff like uh, flux of things that we like are very popular, but we don't get on with at all. In the fact that, like, it's even things like everyone has a minion in front of them. It's like something they can do with dice they roll. Yeah, maybe you've got the cheeky goblin who yeah. uh, will cheekily stab enemy soldiers on your turn. And like to begin with, like even stuff like the art and the writing for all these things is not quite good enough to be like fun enough. Oh, I think the manual is very okay, funny. but it's like if that's going to be the main draw, you know, <laughs> sure, it's not I mean, quite there because apart from that, all you've really got is this dice game. And it's it's very unbalanced, but then it's like people complain about stuff like cosmic being like too unbalanced and too like crazy. But it's like 
At least in Cosmic, you can talk to Matilda. And at least in Cosmic, you've then got this card game, whereas this is like all this kind of crazy random stuff, and then it's a dice game. It's like, what? I was going to say, I mean, is is it a whole lot of rolling dice and hoping you get the number? It's exactly just that. The game exists in Uh, a decision window where you roll your dice and then you decide which dice to sort of hold and then which dice to re-roll, like a fruit machine, um, to try and complete sets. It's, I guess, actually similar to poker, right? Where you, uh, or your five-card stud, where you can discard some cards and then draw more to try and make hands. So it's Uh, Push your luck stuff. Yeah. Um, and then also, if you go bust um, by rolling, if, by farkling, which means you get no set of cool things, no poker hand of dice, basically, then you lose everything. So it's like, oh, do you want to, you know, push your luck? Or do you want to try and go for the thing that'll get you 10 times as many men? That's very unlikely. And that is not terrible at all. It's actually, I kind of enjoyed it. I was looking forward to the game, but then, hey, you just spend a lot of time waiting for your turn. You do spend a lot of time waiting for your turn. And also it has the kind of gotcha stuff where you get cards that be like, you can take 500 uh, soldiers from somebody else or like kill some of their soldiers. So it's, yeah, I mean, it's kind of a light thing that if you're playing with people and I don't know, it's just one of these things where it's just very, feel very ambivalent. I mean, let's be real. Poker works because you're always in your opponent's heads and trying to figure out what they've got. Whereas with Farkle, you know, you don't have that, which is the single most interesting element of poker removed, so then it just becomes this... Is that classic elastic band thing of one person will just get really lucky with the rolls and zoom ahead, everyone else will just attack them and try and mess them up purposefully oh, until God, somebody yeah. else will just sneak ahead. And I don't know, I think I, I kind of enjoy that kind of like rubber banding race, and I think that's a lot of the time what I say what games like Cosmic get attacked for, but I think there's like, there's actually a game underneath that, whereas this is just it's just luck. Um, and lots of people like that kind of game, um, but um, I think they're not very good. Let's be. Let's. We can agree then, Paul, Matt, and I uh, say that the best thing about Dragon Farkle was when we were at uh, Z-Man's booth at Gen Con last year, yeah. and a man in a chainmail hat was teaching us the game, and then he rolled some <laughs> dice and went, "That's, that's Farkle. Farkle." Yeah, he, the most <laughs> droll delivery ever. Just going, "That's Farkle." It's a very chainmail, like a chainmail helmet. He's been, I love that he's guy. been doing that all week, though. He's been wearing that all oh, week. And there's no way to wash something like that. It just it <laughs> stays on you. I mean, yeah, I just can only imagine that you know. It, when like sweating and working hard and wearing it all week when he takes it off there's like you know hair matted to the, oh. to, the to the inside of the chainmail hat um, I hope to see that guy oh. again and see man this he year he was great that would be I, awesome I, I really hope it doesn't sound like we're taking the mech out of him because genuinely we fell in love with him immediately he was brilliant yeah um, he was very funny as well he had some good banter and also just for the record anyone who demos anything at uh, Gen Con or any other conventions yeah kudos to you guys because you work harder than us and we don't oh know yeah it. yeah people doing that for that long in a place that busy and the amount of people that we've met who have been just so chipper and helpful and uh you know outgoing and nice at at the end of it you know after days of it i i don't know how they do it no it's amazing magicians uh let's talk about a couple of things that you've been playing paul um because we've got Uh, a cool mailbag and a cool folk game to get to as well oh oh well shall i tell you about there's just so much to to do and see. All I can see is the word table tits in very large letters. <laughs> okay, yeah. I, I didn't, I didn't actually write You did write it, Paul. That Paul you did it. Paul, I, admit it. I think it was Quentin. I played <laughs> Red Dragon Inn, which is a sort of card-based, let me try and get this right. It's a card-based drinking game, but I don't mean it's a game that you drink and play. It's a game about drinking. 
Mm. It's a game about being in an inn, in a fantasy inn, uh, and you might be a wizard or a cleric or something like that, or a rogue. Uh, and I assume you're like, you're a party of adventurers and you've all, you're not questing, you're just in an inn drinking and, uh, all you need to be is the last person standing or at least sitting. You're getting smashed you to, to forget about your failures as a human. <laughs> It's it's probably the chaser to torch yeah, it's, it's probably not, It's probably more like let's have loads of ale because we just boshed a dragon. <laughs> well, you you can have ale, you can have dragon ale or wine or all these drinks. I saw that you, one uh, of the uh, expansion sets added something called like a wizard martini. That's so. that's fun. <laughs> That sounds about right. I didn't encounter any wizard martinis. I encountered a bunch of spells and a familiar that you can have drink your drinks for you. Okay. So it's kind of like, yep. it's like a, you can, a gamified version of like put, pouring your drink into someone else's drink and forcing them to drink it, that kind of thing. It's a bit like that. You ba- Basically, each character has their own deck of cards, which are, some are the same, some are there's a few sort of unique powers in there, but a lot of the time there's a couple of cards that do the same thing. And what it boils down to is some are sort of defensive where they're cards that deflect things or they're cards that stop somebody using a power on you. Um, and every turn you will, you'll buy drinks for other players. You'll put a card. There's a separate card deck that's just drinks and you'll pass those out to other people and you'll always ideally have some sort of drink in front of you. And then it's your turn. You turn that over. You see what that is. And that notches, usually it notches up your drunkenness or it notches down your fortitude or some combination of the two. And when the two meet, you basically fall over because you're exhausted and drunk. And you're just playing attack cards at each other being like, well, you know, this turn um, I cast a spell on you or I punish you for for trying to interfere with my backpack or my wand or something and you lose fortitude points. It's all uh, It's all fairly sort of straightforward and simple. And it's mostly about holding a hand of cards and making sure that you have some kind of defensive card in there, some kind of offensive card in there, something like that, so that you're ready if somebody comes at you and, and you're is ready it, to... is it like um, somebody plays a card and then you go, aha, like I can counter that with this? Or is it that you have to, a bit like rock, paper, scissors, you have to guess that they're going to try and attack you that round and play a card that defends? It's it's more the first. It's a little bit of both, but it's kind of more the first. It sounds and it's kind definitely... of like the sort of take that card game, which we're not usually huge fans of. No, and I mean, I I had a perfectly acceptable time playing it. Uh, it's not really a game that I would recommend, but I do admit that it was spiced up by actually becoming this is meta a drinking game about a drinking game. So did you where you drink? Did you, when your character drank? I almost said the word dranked there. Uh, dranked. When your character drank, did you have to drink the drank? I had to, uh, drinking the, 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 the dranked when the, the drinks of the, the dranking drunked me. I'll tell you what, and- here's a thing that I would actually recommend. I've just checked, uh, I did a quick cheeky Google. Um, on podcast 23, we mentioned a game called Iron and Ale, which is a Kickstarter game, so it might be a little tricky to find, yes. but give it a Google. Um, Iron and Ale is another fantasy themed game about drinking, um, except. It's actually a drinking game. Um, so you, it's similar to this, it's cards and you're playing cards, which are challenges and all that stuff. But um, the cards are 
real life challenges that you have to do in these like dwarf characters that you are um and just all the sort of like insane american drinking game classics like two people have to lift up the table with one finger and then whoever drops it first is the loser the main memory i have from this and the reason i'm recommending it is i do have a really happy memory where someone played a card which was two players have to have a or no all the players have to go into a hallway or a room and yeah. race from one end of the room to the other on their knees. God, we did, didn't we? Which was like a sort of dwarf-sized race. So you've got yes. five people all trying to run down the corridor in my house on their knees. And I do remember pushing my now fiancé into a cardboard box. And she sort of... It, like, I knew she'd it's be fair, fine because it's a cardboard... Yeah, yeah you know. It's, it's a game. You've got to win. I remember her saying something like... <laughs> As she and then like a, like a crumpling cardboard box sound effects like a Jackie Chan film. Um, it was good. There was also fun. I, that game. Be warned though. Look through the decks of that game because there are cards I, like I one player slaps another player as hard as they can. Wow, it's it's intense, dude. But I mean, I I, I kind of I liked being pushed out of my drinking comfort zone. Yeah, well, that also doesn't sound like it. Just uh, like a lot of the time with these things, where it's like a game about dwarven ale. It's like this weird like game. It seems to be like celebrating. Like yeah, get it drinking, get drunk. And I find it interesting. It's like a, it's kind of a cultural thing, I think. In America, like they go out to drink to get drunk, whereas in like England, we're just we're just drinking all the time. Uh, yeah, but that's the, but England does have like binge drinking culture. Though. Oh no, yeah, we doesn't. We've like, got the, we we've do got drink the reality more. Yeah. America like celebrates the idea of drinking. We we drink just we just do it often to like terrible. Yeah, it's bad. <laughs> like, it's just real bad, it's, like, damaging our public health system. And which is why I always find it a bit weird when it's like <laughs> a game, a, a fun card game about getting smashed. It's just like oh, I've been. It's it's. Definitely a game to play in a kind of safe. I've been in, in an just, environment where you feel comfy with those people doing those things. I've just been so smashed. I, I, a very British thing would be a a, uh, a card game about hangovers, a very or like yes. a game about drinking, but no one else knows you're drunk. Like you know, just yeah. like, <laughs> like it's Christmas or like you're in the office and you're just getting increasingly wasted. Um, but here's the thing. I mean, sort of theme wise, I was not hugely excited. Um, it, it it has that kind of take that game thing like like Munchkin does, where you know if you have the right thing in your hand at the right time, it it helps you. It can push you over the edge to victory. And uh, if you're playing with a bunch of people, you inevitably want to nudge at the player who is in the lead because you do. And then the player who's in the lead kind of uh, actually resents being in the lead. Uh, so second play, second place player ends up winning very often and, you know, it's that sort of thing. And yeah. it's, I like that it's expandable with, uh, some more decks that add some more characters, but I don't really think I would recommend it that much. And while I enjoyed playing it with friends and, you know, with alcohol in character as our characters, which they kind of encourage you to do anyway, um, you know, I, I've played it once or twice. I it goes back in the box. I wouldn't be playing it again. I wouldn't be buying expansions for it. There are like a gazillion expansions as well for this yes. Dreamgiller Dragon Inn game. It's very much like that Munchkin sort of. If people like it and they have fun with it, then because the fun is seeing the new cards, the publisher is able to just print a crap ton of new cards, and that's fine. That's good. That's a good uh, business model. Yeah, yeah. Ooh, put your hand in my mailbag. Funny letter. Oh, thank you for putting your hands into our mailbag and finding letters. Before we start with the letters, it's a good time to let you know that if you want to send us a letter, you can now do so at the shiny email address of contact at shutupandsitdown.com. Uh, so just send us an email to there. That's contact at shutupandsitdown.com. It's like, being like, on, like on the BBC. It's like being on BBC, it, yeah. It is. It's like he's on Blue Peter, which is a programme no one listening to this podcast will probably know. Sorry. <laughs> Sounds like the name of a porn star, but it isn't. Anyway, uh, here is a question 
from oh, a letter, sorry, from Alice Martinez. Hi, I know it's not your typical board game, but if you have access to a Gear VR, I'd love to provide you with a code for the VR version of Lost Cities from the award-winning board game designer Rainer Knizia. I know him very well. Lost Cities <laughs> is one of the first multiplayer games for Gear VR. Give me, I can't speak. The goal of this two-player strategy game is to make the most profit and outwit your opponents whilst exploring mythical realms in search of lost cities. Let us know if you want to play the game. Yeah, so this isn't campfire you need to. This isn't uh, necessarily like uh, an email, that, like where they're asking us a question. But I did want to talk about this because, my God, is this? How do people feel about this? Because I, I've got some strong feelings about the idea of using your VR headset to play lost cities. And before I start going off on a rant. I will mention that actually, if you look at this game, if you Google the Lost Cities Gear VR game, mm-hmm. when you pop into the world, it's not like you're looking, you're not like it projects a garage around you with like the card game on the table. <laughs> it projects like the um, the fantasy landscapes from the game. So you've got a sort of weird tile interpretation of Lost Cities in front of you, but then rather than cards depicting like Atlantis, you are in Atlantis. You're in like a sort of uh, slightly pastely green world, and then there's a card game in front of you that you can play with other people using the VR headset. Right. Well, that- that sounds nice, Quentin. Oh my god, I've old. <laughs> Are you channeling Blue Peter there? No, I, I was trying to. Now and let's then see I how Googled, it's made. <laughs> I googled the Lost Cities VR, and I just got a picture of what looks like. So, I, it's supposed to be someone playing the game like in Egypt with Anubis opposite them, but it just looks like they're playing it with their dog, <laughs> and it looks so strange. Yeah, yeah we just yeah. opened it up. Just googled the same thing. It is. So, Mr. Dog, which card will you choose? Um, yeah, um, I'm not sure how I feel about the idea of playing uh, board games in VR. Oh, my word. So, it feels I mean, a little bit... Um, what do you, you think? <laughs> Sorry, excuse me. Excuse my hay fever-ridden <laughs> cough. Um, so, people for years yep. have been asking why Shut Up and Sit Down hasn't covered Tabletop Simulator, which is actually really big on Steam, and as much as that's big on Steam, there's also loads of um, websites where people can play very, very basic-looking HTML versions of a lot of, like, Euro games, um, yes. or just games in general. And we've never covered them, because for us, like, coming from video games, our line's always been the same. Like, you know, if we're playing a game in front of a screen, we are well aware of how awesome video games can be. And if you want to look at me and Matt's coverage of video games, we do something very similar to Shut Up and Sit Down on coolghosts.net. Um, but a, but, a bit more curated than a lot of other board game sites as well. Uh, yes, you know, and so the idea of board games for us are tactile they're about sat- sitting with people that we are interested in celebrating everything they can do that's unique so when people are like you know do you want to use tabletop simulator to play a tabletop game with people I mean for me that's cool if you can't afford the board games that's a great reason to do it because tabletop simulator offers a cheap way to try games or if you like already know a game inside and out and you're playing it with family but the thing for me it would be like I-, I might like to play a game with my brother for example a game that we both already know and love but only because it would be rekindling memories of playing it with my brother yeah <laughs> so for me the reason I think VR is completely insane and like it's somehow more while it makes more sense than tabletop simulator I find it even more insane than tabletop simulator because what they're doing they're using this cutting edge virtual reality what's the virtual reality they're making well you know we've been working really hard on this and we have fabricated a world where there are some cards and you can actually yeah. see the people sat opposite you while you're playing and, and it's like a dog i i do that every week guys <laughs> yeah. like 
and it's higher res than this and far more tactile. Yeah, I think the loss of tactility is a big thing for me. It's like, if you're going to have it's cards huge. and things, then why, Why? I mean... I mean, I resisted sleeving my Netrunner cards for like a year and a half because I like how actual cards feel under my fingers. But sure. then it turns out there are sleeves you can buy which have a nice sort of uh, rubberized grip that, uh, that <laughs> has some tactility. Oh man, I can tell you're just growling under your voice. Oh, it's got a rubberized grip. I like this card. Oh, oh. Uh, Ultra but, but he's, Pro, uh, he's Pro Max. right though. That's what you want. I mean, there's, yeah. he, he, there's something about the physical, just the physical space, the fact that you're at a table with a cup of tea or a beer or whatever and you can get up or you can you can do things in the space with the components you can stop and uh answer the door or both of you can when you are in a vr space like this it's like there is only the game you know the idea that you can answer the door is uh is not like (laughs) no i think he was talking about what am i saying he was talking about the real Uh, one rather than this yeah i don't know it's it's odd but i mean i I feel because isn't it runner is trapped in a digital game world isn't he we saw yeah we saw a video where runner broadcast live from the game dimension and he's like in the game dimension like and he's got all these like walls of 3d cards moving around so he's probably just wants us to join him in the in the the 3d virtual game dimension i presume he lives there yeah, I, I mean, don't know how, how are we going to link people to what we're talking about. If people Google a Reiner Knizia Game Jam video, they'll see uh, one of the more incredible things that that man has produced. And uh, <laughs> we don't mean to rag on him either because uh, we love Ra, we love Samurai, we love uh, some of his early stuff. So, yeah, this is weird, guys. <laughs> it's so weird. I don't want to do this. No. I don't want it. Well, I find this, we, we, you're getting this with video games as well. I think, isn't it Ubisoft are creating a, uh, a game for... Um, PlayStation VR, which is essentially werewolf. But yes. you're playing werewolf with instead of sitting around a table with people, sitting around with digital versions of people. And I mean, what? I, I just, I just feel like there's so much of VR. If it boils down to being like, hey, how can we use virtual reality to recreate the sensation of sitting across a table from somebody else? I just think maybe don't. <laughs> well, okay. I, yeah. So just to now take completely the opposite side and make this conversation super impossible. Um, a lot of people are saying that one of or possibly the single biggest selling point of VR is to enable things like Skype conversations where you're really sat sure. somewhere, where you're really sat somewhere in a meeting. And if, I, if the person is a very long way away and you want to have like 10 of your university friends all playing werewolf and you're all, you know, in maybe you all live in the United States and you've all gone off to the, the many corners of the country. I think it's a lovely space to get together and do stuff. Yeah, in. and so I think that's why this um, the Lost Cities thing. As you know, I'm sure the developers care a great deal and they've done a great job with it. But I think it's so funny to us because probably if we were going to ask for a board game VR thing, the single most important thing for me would be like good facial capture and voice capture. And yeah, you're like really feeling like you're sat opposite that person that you love. That's the thing. I, I just and these it, screenshots yeah. show you sat opposite a dog or like a zombie Viking, and it's like. Yeah, the yeah. tech isn't there yet. You know, I, I love the idea of maybe being able to have some sort of virtual reality or augmented reality thing where you can sit at a table in your house with your game and then have like almost like 3D Skype where it's literally that person like is like in the room with mm-hmm. you. And that would be amazing. But at the moment, all these weird halfway houses are being like, well, yeah, you're, you're, you'll be mapped to an Egyptian dog. Just makes me think like, <laughs> nah, that's not what human what if, connections what, what feel like. The, the thing is, though, like like they have on Snapchat now, what if I logged in and I could see, like, your face on that dog or you had, like, a dog's nose, but it was clearly you? Then we'd be getting somewhere, especially if you could see, like, the facial expressions that I was uh, I was pulling. <laughs> so so our, our opinion is maybe. Our opinion is Egyptian dogs, possibly. 
Folk Game of the Month. Welcome to the Folk Game of the Month, where we talk about a folk game that we like. Games passed from father to daughter to... Back to the daughteress, father. back to the father, to the dog. The dog can't teach anyone because it's a dog. Uh, if you have a folk game, do email contact at shutupandsitdown.com. And today's folk game is from Gina Gordon, who writes, Hello, comma, friends, comma, which makes her sound a bit like an evil AI. Um, your finger-waggling folk game reminded me of a game we used to play at church camp. How American is that? It, what do you think happens at church camp? Um, they teach you how to build churches. I think it's probably like exactly like normal camp, but then occasionally just get a little like sponsored by God a bit. Yeah. You know, being yeah. like, now, I, now I we're having gonna... a fun time with these marshmallows. Let's remember that marshmallows were invented by Jesus uh, Christ. Jesus Christ. Uh, I was just going to say it's like extended Sunday school, but that's a better answer. <laughs> yeah, you, you you took the bait there, Paul, I'm afraid. Sorry. Uh, so uh, Gina writes, uh, the game was called Baby, If You Love Me, Won't You Please Just Smile? Everyone would sit in a circle <laughs> and one person would choose a victim. Okay, right. Well, there's already something to discuss here. Everyone would sit in a circle and one person would choose a victim and sit in his slash her lap. The person had to say the title phrase, Baby, If You Love Me, Won't You Please Just Smile? Using any means necessary to incite a smile from the other player short of tickling. This usually consisted of talking in a weird voice or moving your body in a strange manner to try and break the other person. If that person showed their teeth, it was considered a smile, so you had to make a lot of lips pulled over gums, uh, which makes this game even more grotesque. In order to end this bizarre trial, the other person had to say, baby, I love you, but I just can't smile without showing their teeth. The person who was it would then move on to someone else's lap until someone lost, and that person would be it. Oh my god, it goes on. Uh, oh no, uh, it goes on? Yes, it goes on forever. Just- Gina also finishes, <laughs> I love the show and look forward to meeting you again at Gen Con. Sorry Paul was barred from the US this year, but Quentin's red pants were splendid. Uh, that's pants in the American sense of the word. And his pants in the English wow. sense of the word were splendid as well. Way. Um So, the first thing... <laughs> There's a lot to un- unwrap here, isn't there? Well, the first thing I want to say that's simplest is I actually played a drinking game that shares a lot of the same DNA with this. I used to play um, a drinking game that me and my friends called Vegetables, um, where it was like call and response. So everyone would have a name which is a vegetable like, you know, aubergine or cauliflower. Well, cauliflower is actually a flower. Did you, did you know that? Cauliflower is a flower. It's not a vegetable. Is it really? It is, yeah. Um, it's a big flower. It's, it's good a in soup. Huge flower. But anyway, so I had some today. Did you? It's good, isn't it? Um, I'm sorry. So, I'm sorry. Go on. Uh, that's the pro vegetable lobby of Shut Up and Sit Down. Um, but yeah, you would, everyone would have a vegetable name like aubergine uh, or like Paul, maybe your courgette. So if I said courgette, then you would have to say someone else's name. But no one could Carrot. show their teeth. That was the only rule. And so if anyone laughed, then they would end up showing their teeth and they would lose. Um, so people were just talking. And of course, because you can't talk when you yeah. hide your teeth, <laughs> you're saying like, aubergine? <laughs> and then she matches. Yeah, exactly. I'm already and, laughing. And it gets bounced around. But when you're drunk, obviously, it's incredible. And then if no one laughs, you just get increasingly absolutely bollocks things like red pepper so is this one that like kind of everyone knows the game exists and it just it just sparks up at a random time I, during the evening no I think we only ever played it in really contrived circumstances because I love those games the ones that oh, actually games that like, can appear and that yeah like that are kind of yeah. ongoing and then they suddenly start going like we had one at a music festival many years ago which we each had to start speaking in purely Radiohead lyrics <laughs> um, and as soon as somebody started doing it it just meant from that point onwards anything you said had to just be Radiohead lyric perfect and, yeah so if, if people want to learn more about drinking games, I wrote a big article on Shut Up and Sit Down. Uh, search for Quinn's drinking games. Um, you'll find that. But yeah, so um, hey, 
Guess what, guys? This is yet another folk game which is quasi-sexual. Yeah, and it's at church camp as well. I mean, yep. I'm just thinking there's a lot to unfold here. I think, you know, the kids have gone to church camp and they're like, hey, I guess we've got to do this thing where we sit on each other's laps. And, you know, I just... <laughs> yeah. I, I just think, yeah, <coughs> it kind of makes a lot of sense. It's, it's also very sweet. Yeah, um, I mean, I've always actually been a fan of Twister, um, and I've said this in my Golden Age talk, and I said it on the you, podcast or, You the still time. say it. You're trying to get me to play Twister with you all the time. You need to, Matt, because it's important, because you need to play all the culturally relevant board Just games. switch all the cameras off. Just switch and then, them off. Well, and then I might play. Lights off, cameras off, that's how you play. Um, but no, Twister's important because it has, like, an actual cultural impact because it lets teens rub up against each other. I think that's important. I think it's, you know, fine. Teens like to do that. That's... What the I sound like the creepiest uncle right now. I cannot. <laughs> you do. No, it's, it's, you do. It's okay. I can say this when I was like on the nephew's shoulder and saying, it's fine. Yeah. Hey, hello, Quins. You have to play Twister? Why don't you get your friends over? You need to play some Twister, Quins. Quins. Oh. Extolling the yet? virtues of, of touching people. But you know, it's it's important to touch people as long as there's consent. So hey, this is sexuality aside, or included, this game sounds awesome. Yeah. I think it it's does. really funny. I think it's clever. I think it's funny. Yes. Everyone laughs. Um I think it would also be I think it works because I bet it's incredibly hard for oh, a friend of yours God. to walk up, sit on your lap and go. Baby. <laughs> like it's just so funny. Yeah, no, it is yes. it's it's very funny. Oh, is it ba- was it baby if you love me then? If you love me, won't you just smile? Oh, you just smile. please just smile. Oh yeah. That or is- even I mean probably like the amount of players who would crack when like the person who's it just looks around the circle and then looks eyes locks eyes on you yeah. and starts walking towards you. Like I bet that breaks fifty percent of people. Yeah. It is, it's making me laugh just thinking already. It's just such a, a horrendously infuriating thing to have said to you as well. <laughs> like, especially by somebody who is now sitting on your lap. Like The level of resentment would reach such huge levels that you just... I couldn't help but just crack at the absurdity of it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> Lovely. What a great game. What do, you, do you have any thoughts, Paul? I Of all the things that were going to be pulled out of the mailbag today and that we would end up discussing the thing is we we've had this theme for a while i think actually with folk games where it's ended up with some people in a room or some teenagers in a stuck in a place together or in the woods or and it's i think it's all i sort of agree with you it's kind of it's all done in a kind of an innocent coming of age sort of way but oh my goodness is i feel like i missed out now that there was some period of my life where i just didn't spend enough time rubbing my friends <laughs> no absolutely I agree with that as well but I find it it's a fun thing that reminds you that games in a way are just all just vehicles to interactions yeah yes. and, uh, and, yeah. and as we get older often I find the sorts of games I enjoy the most are games which allow me to live out fantasies I can't such as being like an evil dictator or or just being like having a lovely time in a twee fantasy world whereas mm. when you're a teenager yeah. what sort of thing are you interested in <laughs> I mean teenagers you just really struggle to like sometimes have fun with people, especially strangers. Yeah. And so the fact that, yes. like, that's when I played drinking games the most, you know? Like, that's when I used to show up and be like, hey, there's nine of us, we're all awkward together, and I would, like, do my, what I guess now is, like, proto-shut-up-and-sit-down skills of being like, hey, we're going to play a game, we're it's going to be fun. awesome. Yeah. I mean, that was the only time I was ever confident as a kid. But, hey, it worked, you know? I could get ten people wow. who didn't know each other to have an amazing time, laugh, and then after you've laughed for, like, an hour, you know, it's like, it's like drinking, you know, where you... uh not that we particularly espouse drinking on this podcast. We think it's fine. <laughs> Live your life. But, you know, it's a it's an accelerating factor to enjoying each other. Yeah. To, to being you friends. Know, it's 
It's funny that you say that because now, uh, as as I get older, the kind of games I I enjoy are ones where I have to see other people improvising more, or I discover new things about people that maybe people I may have known for years, like you guys. If if we sat down and we played some kind of game where hypothetical situations came up, what would you do in this situation? What's your opinion about that sort of stuff? I'm kind of, I don't know, I'm still kind of fascinated by that kind of thing. And I I can think of a lot of friends I have where I I don't know how they feel about certain things or what they would do in a particular situation. And I want to find out. Uh, Have you considered Fantasy Flight's new edition of Never Have I Ever? Which is uh, going to be coming in 2017. Really? That no. is <laughs> no, a no. game. But I'm just saying. That I have played. <laughs> oh wow, you got me there. I'm so gullible. <laughs> no, it's it's you rely on me for all your board game knowledge. So I tell you what, if Fantasy Flight want to put out a version of no, because all the fun I've never have I ever is saying questions that are tailored to your group of friends. Anyway, how, how about how about Reina Knizia's Never Have I Ever? Oh, uh, never have I ever discovered oh. the square root of 24. I know, just quite fancy playing a live game of uh, of. Uh, Maybe if you love me, at one of the podcasts we're doing. Ooh, podcast. that's a good idea. We uh, should spring that on somebody. Of, that's, that's a bit bad. We can't we spring it on members of the audience to come up no, and we sit on their We lap. absolutely cannot do that. That is a, an absolutely fundamental <laughs> betrayal of trust. This is why I like you no, being no, here. Look out for me. It's, it's like the dwarven drinking game. You need to know beforehand exactly what you're getting absolutely. into and what sort of things will happen and feel 100% Life comfortable with those Billy people. Life game at the podcast. We can though. absolutely do it to Paul. I was thinking we could do Billionaire Banshee, but we could write our own. Okay. And not yes. know what they are. Oh, we each write down Yeah, we each write down some own. Yeah. Yes. Okay, anyway, yes. we have, we've overrun like a, like a river over a dam when it's been raining, but the rain is conversation. Uh, now everybody can enjoy <laughs> my interview with Soren Johnson. And uh, thank you so much for listening, everybody. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another Shut Up and Sit Down interview. With me today is Mr. Soren Johnson, who you might know as the lead designer on Civilization IV, the video game. You might know him as the founder of Mohawk Games, the creators of Offworld Trading Company, which has just come out, a fantastic game of economic warfare, again, a video game. Or you might know him as the creator of the Designer Notes podcast, a podcast all about talking to game designers about their creative process of making, again, video games. So you might wonder what on earth I've got, uh, Soren. Hi, Soren, by the way. How's it going? <laughs> Doing great. How's it going? Uh, good stuff. It's going well. Um, you might be wondering why we're talking to him. And the answer is it's because Soren is uh, that rarest of things. He is a video game designer who loves and learns from board games. And uh, so really, Soren, I just wanted to... Now Offworld Trading Company is out. I wanted to start by talking to you about the uh, genre of sort of economic uh, battle games um, because I've always actually said that this is one area that board games have focused on for a long time and video games have never really covered. Was that one of the reasons that you uh, went and made Off-World Trading Company? Did you feel there was ground there ready to be be plowed? Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, to me, I think that... Uh, video games have almost a bit of a creativity problem when it comes to like how we do you know conflict and that basically just always means means it always means war basically (laughs) um and uh a, a good way to look at this is if you look at like the top 50 games on board game geek right by rating and you compare them to say the top 50 games on metacritic for pc games or especially for pc strategy games um you know you'll see 
um, basically the same themes done over and over and over in video games. And you'll see, on the other hand, you'll see just a, an amazing variety of, um, you know, both themes and mechanics and, you know, even just genres, uh, on the, uh, the, on the board game side. And, um, yeah, I mean, you know, an RTS and you can, an, an RTS that's just about, you know, economics. I mean, there, it hasn't really been done before. Like people, when they try to comp- compare off world or something, they often have to stretch back all the way to the eighties to a really old game called mule. Yeah. The RTS, if our, if our, uh, listeners aren't aware, stands for real time strategy, right. meaning, uh, yeah. So if you played video games, you'll know this is like command and conquer and stuff, but off world trading company represents, yeah, you're building a, a little economy as fast as you can and yep. then trying to, uh, lower or raise prices and then beat your opponents to death with those raised prices is the way I've been. Uh, referring to it yeah um and it's a lot of fun i really enjoy it but uh mostly soren i want to thank you for validating something i've been saying which is uh that there are so many lessons in board games just waiting for people to to use and you've made, managed to make something so interesting um was it a relatively easy process to take a lesson from board games and apply it to video games or were there sort of unexpected hurdles in translating it to a new format yeah um i mean i've always been a big board gamer so it's kind of, it's kind of hard for me to like draw a fine line of like you know what lessons i learned from video games and which ones i learned for board games um but i have i have given it some thought about especially the the age we're in now where um you know there's a lot of board games that people never actually play physically they just play like the version on their ipad or something right Mm -hmm. yeah um which is kind of like this weird thing of like what are you playing you're like well i'm playing a board game but it's really actually like literally it's a video game right so what am i playing and you know what does it mean when someone says this thing is this thing is like a board game or this thing is board gaming um and to me the thing that defines that is basically transparency that when you play a board game part of the enjoyment there is that the fact that you are like running all of the rules in your head, you know, that, that like you see, you know, even if like, let's say there's uh, you know, let's say you're playing a, you know, a card driven war game, right. Where, you know, there's a deck of cards and there's going to be all sorts of things that come up that may be unexpected, but you're kind of, you're, you know, you're aware of like, okay, this is the, this is the possibility space. And maybe you will go when you read through the cards ahead of time or, or whatever, but you know that everything you need to know about the game is in that box. Right. Yeah. And that you're going to be exposed to all the rules at some point. Whereas with video games, um, because, you know, we sort of essentially have like unlimited resources in terms of being able to like cram in as many rules into a system as we want into a game as we want to, um, you know, a lot oftentimes, uh, you know, design, designers don't worry about whether they actually want to expose all parts of the game to the player or not. Um, like you couldn't sit someone down and say, OK, explain to me exactly how SimCity r- works right like, yeah like that would be impossible you have to you have to describe it sort of abstractly you know at a high level um and i'd say with Offworld that the big th- the big reason why i think a lot of people say that it feels like a board game to them is because uh you could actually sit down and explain to me how Offworld works you know all of the you know like um you know when you have a steel mill, for example, like, you know, you mouse over it and like we literally, we really, we literally have an element that kind of looks like one of those wooden cubes from a board game, right? Where you see like two red cubes go in and one's, you know, gray cube goes out. That means, you know, like two cubes of iron go in and one cube of steel comes out, right? Yeah. Um, 
And, uh, you know, and, we, you know, we have like modifiers so we can so kind of fudge things so that like, OK, now if you get this bonus, you get one point two five cubes. Right. Which is something you couldn't pull off in a board game. But it's still based off of this this core idea of you can see how all the little all the little rules work. Yeah, I, I should also be clear. I do really like the game. I've uh, I enjoyed it a lot when I was poking it in early access and I've been enjoying the full release. But uh, what I find that's funny about it is you're right that clearly the board game influences are there because I know exactly why anything is but what i find funny is that because it's a video game and just naturally through like genre conventions i guess um it's not me you know meticulously playing with rules a lot of it still is gut and instinct mm-hmm. in, a, in a very video game way right. you know because th- things are just happening too fast so yeah. I, I won't be able to meticulously calculate how many steel mills i want it's just like this is probably enough this sure. i probably shouldn't sure. build anymore yeah and uh, which i find fun you know yeah. it's, it's it's definitely like a, a worthy object in its own right yeah well that's one of the risks in board games right and this is something we go people you know go back and forth a lot it's kind of like sort of one of those big questions about kind of your games in question in general is that if you have these games where it is possible to do all the calculations like is that kind of a bad thing because that encourages players to well go ahead and do that right so and this is i guess why i've always found euro games are kind of like this dark art because Mm -hmm. they are games that theoretically present all the possibilities to you yep and yet also make it so that sitting there and doing the calculation isn't appealing because that will kill the game for everybody else so euro games are a whole genre of complex puzzles which have the players going "Eh, this is probably right right which i can't imagine how you even begin to do that as a designer but i suppose you've done something similar with off-world trading company. yeah well i think it's it's that real-time element helps a lot like when it comes to board games i usually prefer a game to have some sort of random element or some sort of piece of him from information so i don't feel like well you know i'm if i took the 10 minutes i could figure out what's the best move right <laughs> and, I mean, and i, I just guess you could argue that uh, that turn-based euro games are still kind of a genre of real-time games because the real-time pressure is coming from your friends right. waiting <laughs> real-time social pressure right yeah, yeah exactly yeah. and that's to me that's that's a little uncomfortable so i prefer the game to have like kind of an unknown element so like i'm like okay i actually can't do all the calculations i'm just gonna have to play it by feel Mm. um and this is one of the big advantages of having like an actual real-time video game is that um you know you literally can't do the calculations because the game is running in real time so you are going to have to play by feel uh, so just to uh, take things back slightly more towards board games, uh, mm-hmm. if the people at home have sworn off video games, because I don't know, I don't know why you would. Video games are awesome. Um, and we espouse both to shut up and sit down. But um, so what are some economic board games that you think that maybe you just like the most? I was going to ask you which you think the best ones are, but I think that's a less interesting question than yeah. the economic board games you like the most. Uh, well, certainly one that really jumped out to me was uh, Power Grid. Mm-hmm. Um, and especially because I had, I had for a long time been kind of fiddling with this idea of you know doing a video game where there's a free market and you know as you buy a, a resource the price goes up and as you sell a resource the price goes down and um, you know that that that's very easy for a computer to do and I kind of always just assumed like yeah but that it's just something you couldn't really do in a board game because it would be you know you'd have to like would you have a piece of paper where you keep track of everything and like it just be so awkward. And I think, yeah, in the 1980s, that literally was the answer. I think there were a lot of you know, papers and pencils in the 80s. Yeah, there's this very old game called Belter from GDW in like 1978, something like that, that somehow I found when I was a kid. And this actually was a huge influence on me for making this game because it's it's basically kind of like off-world except on the asteroid belt. You're going out and you're claiming, you know, you're prospecting okay. and claiming asteroids and you're producing these different resources and you're bringing back to a market to sell. And yeah, we literally had that piece of paper where every time you, you sold, 
rolled X number of resources, you'd bring the price down. Then you roll a dice between turns to bring the price back up. And you know, Man, there it was, was so many of these, right? The yeah. uh, the the genre of just like incredibly tedious trading but in space to make it exciting yeah, I yeah. wish to god I could remember the name of the game but the coolest mechanic I've seen in any of these was one of these like everybody's trying to make a profit in an asteroid belt mm. but I think if you played with four or more players one of the players just took on the role of like the union authorities and they weren't playing the same game as everyone else that, their th- only job was to was that Belter? that was Belter yeah, oh yeah my god. that's incredible oh. <laughs> so you have actually played that that's because it's no I, I haven't played it I just read about it, it and okay. I thought it was really interesting that one of the players just has to keep the prices of all the galactic yeah goods, yeah like, it's the, it's standard. it's the fifth player and they're like this faction that has like this the strongest ships if they want to they can wipe everyone out but they're like not <laughs> not allowed to unless i think one of the other sides does a little too much piracy um so yeah it's like they're it's their job just to make sure the prices don't get out of control like if it's that is their so ex- awesome yeah God. Okay, but yeah, so you like uh, so Belter was an influence on you, and uh, and Power Grid, of course, is just so elegant. And in yeah, terms well, of I should that- yeah, let me jump back to Power Grid for a moment because it, for the people, I mean, I'm probably plenty of your listeners have played it, but just to spell out like what's so incredible about Power Grid is that the whole market mechanic of as you buy the price goes up and as you sell the price goes down. It's like how do you how do you do that in a simple way where you don't need the piece of paper and they just have that track right where mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know they're you know the you know, oil is has you know a three dollar section and a four dollar section and a five dollar section and a six dollar section, and you place each of the little you know wooden pieces of oil on that, and as you pick them up from the board, you know the price starts going. Well, let's see how would it work? As you pick them up from the board, the <laughs> yeah. price—it's almost hard to describe. But like when you see it in practice, it just works perfectly. As yeah, I you- mean, welcome to my world, right? <laughs> yeah, this is this is my job, and it is it is tough. But yeah, so gradually as you pick things up, um, you reveal higher and higher numbers. Um, yep, exactly. But it's, yeah, it's elegant and then, it, but it completely perfectly models like the price of certain things increasing. It's, uh, yeah, it's good. The Power Grid, yeah, I remember we did review it back in the day and we should find an excuse to revisit it, like a rules explanation or a let's play because there's a nice new deluxe edition and stuff. Mm, yep. But yeah, it's it's great, but it's absolutely brutal. Um, yeah. Exactly like Off-World Trading Company, yeah. I suppose. Yeah, it also has the auction element, which I really love in games. Um, I mean, oh, auctions are always yeah, great. I mean, yeah, a lot, of, a lot of games have auctions. I mean, that's, that's a very good board game element. Oh my God, I forgot yeah of course auctions is another thing that i always said video games should steal and yep. off what trading company has yeah i'm surprised that fewer games have ever done it right i mean i i don't know because it just works it works so well mm-hmm, <laughs> i don't know mm-hmm. um although we you know it's interesting the process we went through to one of the issues with auctions though in general and this is true in board games as well and we had early on in the design of Offworld is it's you know it's fun to bid on stuff but everyone has kind of this limit of how much they can bid right and sometimes mm-hmm. that can kind of mess up the situation because you know this awesome power plant comes up in power grid and there's only one player who's got enough money sitting around to actually buy it right yeah. um and uh so so sometimes the auctions don't work out because the other players haven't been careful about you know making sure they have enough money sitting around um and of course that's part of the game part of the, the game is making sure you have the money when you need it for the auction right um but in off world we have this debt mechanic which means when you bid on an auction it's basically you're paying it with paying for it with a credit card um <laughs> and that means you can bid as high as you want right and you can yeah. you can absolutely kill yourself by overbidding for something um but like that's something i like to see in a i, I try i'm trying to think if there's been a board game that's done something like that a, a board game that lets you go into debt yeah a lot of board games let you take loans, but um, 
Well, have you ever played any of the 18xx games? Um, yeah, I mean, the, I certainly know what they are, but I haven't ever actually been able yeah, to me, dive me into too. one. <laughs> it, just, it, it seems like a pretty difficult genre yeah. to get into. Yeah. But yeah, I understand that if you want to sort of go into debt and go yeah. absolutely crazy with stocks and stuff, yeah. that's a genre I mean, Steam, Steam works that way, certainly. Um, the... Uh, where really yeah steam, yeah, yeah the uh, the digital distribution service for video no, no, games no 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 steam the um oh, <laughs> the board game, the board, game. <laughs> Fair, board games um yeah the oh, uh, right. that's uh, is that the that's martin wallace right yeah martin wallace is steam yeah yeah, yeah you're constantly t- like basically every turn you are you're you're definitely taking a loan it's, li- it's literally oh, a question of brass? like what's that oh, i wonder if you mean brass or steam uh i think it's steam i bet you're right i just reviewed brass recently so okay my brain. yeah uh, uh yeah pretty much every turn you're taking out a loan it's, it's literally a question of like how mu- how big of a loan are you going to take out so right um and it has the same benefits that we saw in Offworld, which is like if you allow players to go into debt it gives them more flexibility so they're they can take a risk you know if mm-hmm. they feel like i really want to do this thing i know i'm gonna have to do it go into debt for it but i think it can work out as opposed to a player being in a situation where they're like i'd like to do this thing but i just don't have the money to do it so this you know, my options are now limited. Yeah, I, uh, I, in a lot of ways, I think that um, you're correct. And actually, I'd take it further and say that economic warfare is often more interesting than um, like traditional depictions of military warfare. You can do just as much fun stuff with it. Yeah. Um, have you ever played Chinatown? Uh, I've got it on my shelf in the shrink Ooh. wrap. I really want to try it, but I haven't oh, nice. had a chance yeah, yet. Just so interesting in terms of uh, in terms of a game that is <laughs> that is purely negotiation and uh, how everybody comes into or even Lords of Vegas. You know, everyone comes into possession of different yep. lots that yep. are going to be useful to different people, and uh, and hilarity and terrible, terrible pain ensues. Yep, yep, for sure. I mean, another thing that should be mentioned about economic conflict is the other thing that's really great about them is they when you're talking about military conflict, it's very hard to do military conflict that involves more than two sides mm. right um mm. i see we are right? going I with mean, this you, yeah you, yeah i mean you can all i mean people play risk right like it does work but like that is one of those issues with those games is like it, it all of those games essentially become a game of diplomacy right which yeah which is fine but like there is a big downside to that right whereas if you're talking about economic warfare you know you have a lot of sort of you know you have a lot of indirect <laughs> conflict right um yeah. and uh like one of one of our big elements in offworld came comes sort of directly from like Catan, right? Which is, uh, you know, we have this black market where you can mess with other people, but mm-hmm. it's heavily limited how often you can use it. You can't just do it arbitrarily, right? Like yeah. you can basically only buy like once a minute and every time you buy it, the price goes up for everyone. So you're only gonna be able to buy so many a game. And, you know, basically that's the robber from Catan, right? Which is like, here's, you know, here's a game where you can't really hurt other players except for this one thing. But yeah. you can only use it in these specific circumstances. It's uh, it's so much more interesting than people than people believe. The the one that I'm really desperate to play um, in terms of just bizarre economic board games that are secretly the most fascinating ones is um, Have you heard of Container? Mm, no, I haven't. A completely bizarre game where you all run shipping companies that are shipping goods to an island. Um, but if if I manufacture, I don't know, cars you can end up shipping the cars to the island, which means that then I then have to buy the cars back off you when they get to the island um, because they're in your warehouse. But that means that you can set the price. Um, So it's a balance of uh, trying to figure out how much I want cars to be on the island and how much I can sell them for and all just uh, completely mad stuff that once you get past, I think that initially like quite woolly um, uh, perception people have of an economic game, it becomes just tremendously interesting and electric and dangerous very quickly. Yeah. 
Yeah, there's a lot have of you, options yep. for sure. Have you found that, um, uh, like within the video game community, people's receptions to Offworld has been like wary, or have people been more willing to engage with it than uh, than you were expecting, or or what? Uh, I mean, the the reaction has been very good. Um, I mean, I think a lot of people kind of like are intrigued right off the bat. I mean, it's nice. It's it's kind of an advantage to be able to have this kind of weird hook of like, yeah, we're an RTS, but there's no units and there's no combat, and so people mm-hmm. are like, oh. Well, okay, tell me more, right? Like, that sounds pretty interesting. Um, whereas if you're like, oh, we made a sci-fi RTS where you blow up people with guns, it's like, oh, okay, great. <laughs> yeah, you have competition with everybody else in the world. Yeah. Um, so before before I let you go, I do want to change tack uh, a bit and talk a bit about Civilization, which is, I think, the game of yours that uh, that a lot of our, of our readers will have played. Sure. Um, Civilization 4 was, of course, the one with you at the helm, if I'm right. Yep. And uh, yeah, so I just wanted to know what you think of um, of uh, civilization-related or civilization-building board games. I think it's something that is hard to pull off well. You know, um, it's funny because it. Well, this is almost the reverse of Offworld Trading Company because um, uh, we reviewed Through the Ages recently uh-huh. and we also reviewed Nations and... Um, you know, unlike with economic games where video games are lagging behind, you know, these games do end up drawing comparisons to civilization. Yeah. And um, you know what? Like, you're not, you tend not to be interacting that much with other players in um, in the civilization building classics that are yeah. espoused on Board Game Geek. And as such, you know, there's a pretty good argument for like, well, you know, just play a video game by yourself yeah. and be the, be the protagonist all the time. There's just so much, I mean... Civ takes advantage of the fact that it's a video game so much, right? Like there's, mm-hmm. and Civ also kind of has that, the little bit of that board game DNA of like, a, you know, it's trying to make a lot of the gameplay transparent. Um, but that's just something video games do really well. Like they can have a whole lot of transparent stuff inside of them and still hang together. Um, whereas I think with, with Civ building games, I think the issue is either you have to go really abstract. So you have this like Civ building game that, is you know kind of like about technologies and leaders and concepts but it doesn't really have a map which is essentially i mean that's basically through the ages right um and it's like so that kind of works but also kind of feels like i don't know like how can you have a civ game without a map right but the ones that do have a map are then like too ungainly and just like these giant sprawling affairs that you know you'll probably play once and then be like okay we'll just <laughs> we'll just put that aside um, yeah it's tricky i suppose because once you have a map um then you've got a game where theoretically players are interacting but in practice for it to be a civ game there's still that like almost onanistic focus on your own civilization right. which isn't interesting to other players yeah um it's why i think twilight imperium third edition was uh, was one of the big successes they had there was um forcing a lot of like sub phases into each turn where you're not just waiting for your turn but someone triggers politics and then you all do politics mm-hmm. or someone triggers yeah. tech and you all do tech yeah I'll, I'll tell you the one board game that got at least world history right in like a remarkably small format that i've always really admired which is uh mm. history of the world um, oh i don't i don't think i've played that oh, one. Oh, really wow uh, it's i don't know in my opinion it's kind of a masterpiece um it's oh, tell me about it so i mean have you played vinci or small world i've played small world okay so small world is based on the the basic mechanics of history of the world, which I think were based on Vinci. Um, although I haven't played Vinci, I've only played history of the world and small world, but, um, sure. But the, this basic idea of you and you, this probably will make sense to you once you kind of correlate it with, with small world world. But the idea of history of the world is it's like, it goes through six turns, um, mm-hmm. where, uh, every turn 
everyone gets to play one empire, right? So, like, in the very first turn, that means, like, someone is Egypt and someone else is, is like, one of the early ch- early Chinese dynasties and someone else is the Minoans. And, um, and it's like, okay, you start in this location and you get this many guys. With the same as in, like, Small World, right? Like, in a turn, you get, you get this many strength points or whatever to spread out. Yeah, this many kobolds. You get 40 kobold tokens that you right. can place all over the board. So, you go as far as you can and then you stop, <coughs> you know, and then you, then you take score and then you move to the next epoch in which and then you have like kind of this this drafting game to decide who's going to who's going to pick the greeks or the romans or whoever comes in the, in the next epoch um, and the thing about it that works really well is that one of the issues that the civ games have is they're a lot of fun but they don't really look like world history right because no. you know it's basically like as if every country in the world kind of was like china in the sense that like it you know, it kind of got bigger and bigger and bigger, and then it kind of like just stuck to stay the same size for you know a couple thousand years, right? Right. There's not the uh, the sort of collapse of civilizations and then the appearance of new civilizations constantly. Yeah, you don't get this nice dynamism. And history of the world actually gets that right because it's like you have each civilization has this moment of moment in the sun, right, where they spread out. But from that moment on, they're kind of like this this you know decadent old empire that slowly gets chipped away at you know, during the rest of the game. That's um, really interesting. Yeah. So it's pretty cool. So every once in a while you get one of these old civs, like the Egyptians or something, like let's say they take Sudan or something. And for whatever reason, it didn't make sense for someone else to take it. So like they might stick around till like the 1800s, you know, or something like that. Mm. And like, yeah, it's just, it's, it's a really, it's a really interesting game. Yeah. That's a lot of fun. Yeah. I suppose that should be um, the thrill of a civ game is seeing how long. A, yeah. I suppose if, if there's one core to civilization, not the games, but the actual concept, within human history is that sometimes a civilization will be around for a long time by which I mean like 800 years or something (laughs) whereas every board game and video game depiction is like oh yeah you're going to be one civilization it it already destroys it because you're going to be there from the beginning of human history to the end yeah Yeah. which then invalidates what's actually special about civilizations which is that they rise and fall yeah yeah exactly I mean Civ Mm. Civ is really kind of like it's actually a game about being kind of like a god king you know, basically yeah, some kind of weird immortal person who came down from yeah. Mars. And, and, and yeah. And generally speaking, things only think everything just moves forward. Right. You know? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that that's, that's fine. It's, it's the game people want to play. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, or the game they think they want. You yeah. Know, uh, I mean, yeah. yeah. So, and, but it's been interesting to see in, on the video game side, how, uh, if I don't know if you played the Paradox games, you know Crusader Kings. Oh, sure. or you're, you're I actually used to work for Paradox as, oh, uh, in, no. mar- in marketing. Weirdly. Oh wow. Okay, there you go. So I mean, they've they've actually kind of filled in this space that like Civ ignored, right? Of like, yeah, what if what if it was okay that you know your your king died and the son was a moron and you know gets deposed <laughs> and now you're a duke again, right? Like, yeah. we would never consider doing that in a Civ game, right? Because players just absolutely refuse to like accept that stuff gets taken away from arbitrarily, but somehow it's okay to do that in, in those games. So it's, right. it's interesting. I mean, a, a consequence of that is that in the civilization video games, you know, maybe in an entire game spanning 20 hours or whatever, you get one good war because you're swelling the whole time, mm-hmm. right? Yep. Like you, yep. you're building up, and, right? Which is, you know, which is not actually what you want from a Civ game. So yeah, it's complicated. What people think they want versus, you know, what what to serve them up as a designer. Um, in closing, mm-hmm. though, I just do want to pimp your podcast a bit. 
Okay. Um, so designer notes. Uh, well, do you want to tell people what designer notes is? Because if they're listening to this, they listen to podcasts. podcasts they probably do. So probably. Uh, yeah, designer notes is a podcast I've been doing for about a year and a half now, and um, basically in it every month, uh, I and I have some some uh, guest interviewers as well. Um, interview uh, basically a noted uh, game designer on basically their career, um, like not just you know kind of what are the biggest games they worked on, but how did they get into the games in the first place and you know, did they play games when they're when they're young, and did they want to make games? And then once they start making games, why did they make the cho- choices they did? Mm. Um, and uh, for for a board game audience, uh, we've had, we've had uh, Mark Herman on, um, we've had Bruce Shelley, um, and I'm sure we'll have. I, you, it, do you want? Can you outline like a uh, the game that those two might be most famous for? Sure. Uh, I mean, Bruce Shelley. Um, he worked on. He was uh, he was at uh, Avalon Hill and SPI for many years. Um, right. And uh, I mean, he gosh, I'm, without my notes, I, I don't know exactly which one, but he was sort of instrumental in some of those early eighteen XX games. Um, okay, got it. Uh, and um, Mark Herman um, is basically he's a longtime war game designer, um, and he is responsible for um, basically the card driven war game. He, uh, series, oh, really? you know, so which, which became Try Struggle. For him, uh, that started with, uh, if you will allow me to use my Google Foo, Foo right now. You, you are completely allowed. To make I, sure uh, I get the name right, because there's We the People and For the People. I did feel like I was people. sort of like pushing you to, not under the bus, but certainly towards the bus when I asked <laughs> you to name the games of these designers that so, I didn't know. Yeah, so the, 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 that started with We the People back in the early, early 90s, and that was the, right, the game yes. about uh, the Revolutionary War. Um, and basically, that's what where the whole idea of the card-based war game uh, began, uh, which is that uh, you take you take the rules out of the rule sheet and you put them onto the cards, um, mm-hmm. and then they also they also tend to be sort of like um, node based, perhaps area of influence based. Uh, I mean, they, they've they've had a, a pretty good run, right? Like they've become a very a vibrant category now. Um, yeah, yeah, to say the least. Yeah, and he's he, I mean he's he's made tons of games right he's like a, he started making games in the 70s so he's he's got a long history uh as well beyond that but those that's probably what he's most known for um but then i also have interviews with uh you know like rob pardot of blizzard uh we had actually a two-part series with him on you know his whole career there which went from you know starcraft through uh world of warcraft um and uh, uh i have some stockpiled with uh, sid meyer and uh, brian reynolds that i haven't gotten up yet but uh we'll, Ooh, we'll be soon stuff. so yeah that's that sounds like uh, that sounds if, if i didn't already subscribe i would say <laughs> that, that sounds like it's worth subscribing to uh thank you so much for your time soren and uh, so yeah if people want to find Offworld trading company and uh, have a very stressful time on mars worrying about the price of water uh that is available on steam right now uh Offworld being one word obviously Offworld trading company mm-hmm. and uh hey civ 4 probably still might just be the best civ game so uh <laughs> maybe maybe buy civilization 4 if you've never treated yourself yeah. to a civilization game maybe it's very it's quite affordable now <laughs> it, it is certainly affordable thank you so much Zoran. cool thanks good to be here
Wasn't that an interesting interview, guys? It was. It was, wasn't it, Jess? Yes. What's your favourite bit, Matthew? I like the bit where I pretend at the end of the interview that I've listened to it because we record the outro afterwards. Yes. And I haven't heard it yet, but I say it with sincerity because I believe that your conversation with this man will be interesting. Thank you so much for listening to the Shut Up and Sit Down podcast, guys. We're going to be actually trying to produce more podcasts this year than ever before. So uh, do check your little podcast feed and uh, we'll hopefully be talking at you in your car or headphones again very soon very soon bye Mm. goodbye bye